HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. With Shift Work, a podcast made in collaboration with RWCF and HRN, we're shifting the conversation about how the restaurant food you love makes its way to the table. Listen to and follow Shift Work on your favorite podcast app. We were first introduced to Edith's in the summer of 2020 when we joined the line of several dozen other hungry Brooklynites looking for hand-rolled bagels and hot latkes. Fast forward 18 months and Edith's has two permanent locations, including a brand new flagship complete with cafe and grocery. Founder Alyssa Heller is on a mission to highlight the food of the Jewish diaspora and beyond the standard delicatessen offerings. Alyssa has previously worked on operations for big brands such as Milk Bar and Dylan's Candy Bar and is bringing her love of Jewish cuisine forward with Edith's. We are so happy to have you on the show. Welcome. Um, Welcome. How are things? Opening weeks? Are you... Are you still standing? I'm alive. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, but no, it's been, it's been, you know, another crazy couple of weeks, which I feel like is definitely in line with the rest of the exciting year, year and a half that we've been, you know, open and kind of working to bring Edith's and our mission to life. So I feel like, you know, it's more of the same, just constantly like powering forward. <laughs> yes, constantly. And you have powered forward of uh, many of the restaurateurs we've talked to. It's like you went from pop up to, you know, sandwich counter to full on cafe and, and grocery. So tell us a little bit about that journey. Yeah, I think it's one of the questions I get the most is like, how did you do it? I think the pandemic really, you know, helped in a lot of ways. A lot of people become really inspired by things that they love or, you know, passion projects that they wanted to bring to life. And um, it's just been a really amazing experience to be able to to even have the opportunity to go on this journey. Um, But we started our pop-up just because I was really looking to just test my own point of view after, you know, working for a variety of pretty large food brands Um, and just kind of not having the experience that I was hoping for, whether it was like lack of growth opportunities or, you know, an environment that I wasn't loving, whether it was like workplace culture or just kind of frustrated with 
the lack of opportunities that, you know, I had for myself, even after putting in so much work, you know, for 10 years in the food industry, um, on the consumer side, mostly, but, um, you know, I, even in the process of bringing Edith to life, um, you know, I was kind of just thinking of the most risk-free way of doing it. You know, my background is in supply chain and strategy and operations. And I was always tasked with like how to grow a company to be really, really big, but doing it at, you know, in a way that mitigated the most risk, um, whether that was operational risk or financial risk. So that's kind of the lens in which I saw Edith's. Um, and I figured a pop-up was kind of just the lowest risk way to see if people were really interested in the story that I had to tell through our food, um, which definitely was different than my experience with Jewish food growing up. Um, and we wanted to start really small, but kind of put in the, I guess, subliminal framework to our customers that hopefully at some point we would become more than just a pop-up. So um, we started out of Poly G's in August of 2020, and it was literally just me standing um, in front of like a host stand outside <laughs> and um, we were cooking on folding tables in the back and I got the opportunity to work with some amazing people just because of, you know, nobody really having work during the pandemic. And, um, and that's how Edith was started. I kind of just started reaching out to my network, um, reaching out, cold calling pizzerias that might not be open during the day. I really needed an oven to make our bagels. And it kind of all just started from there. Um, yeah. I was gonna, just going to say, did you, you, so you cold called Polly G. That wasn't like the original, that wasn't the original plan. It was just like, you, you were like, I need an oven who has ovens, pizza parlors. Yeah. I was like, I need an oven who has ovens, pizza parlors. We were, we were doing all of like our R and D out of a different pizza oven, um, at another Brooklyn restaurant called Fausto, um, in Prospect Heights, they were my neighbor. That's where I used to live. So um, they were generous enough to let us use their oven during the day. And then um, just in terms of opportunity, you know, they weren't able um, to kind of take on this whole pop-up um, experience. You know, it's a lot to let somebody else into your space and it's a lot of, you know, moving parts and, um, that's when Polly, you know, expressed a lot of interest. He, I, I emailed probably 30 different pizzerias and nobody got back to me except for Polly. When <laughs> um, typical, you know, new business form and function, you get a lot of no's. <laughs> so, right. um, but yeah, so it wasn't the original plan. It just came together pretty serendipitously. Um, and then since we opened our doors at the pop-up, we really just haven't looked back. Um, Tell us yeah. a little bit. I know that um, I feel like people have the ability to sort of get the pop-up started and, and understand how that hustle would happen. How did you go from pop-up to your first permanent location? And, and talk to us too about um, finances. Was it done with, with profits and earnings from the pop-up or was, was the pop-up a place to find investors? We used the pop-up 
to as almost like an incubator for our brand. Um, we used it to really see what people resonated with. You know, that was kind of the beautiful part of me standing outside <laughs> talking to everybody. Um, you know, for almost six months, we talked to our customers, we learned what people liked, we learned what worked, what didn't. And we kind of just said that no matter what we did at the pop-up, everything was okay. Cause it was all good learning. Um, and if the pop-up, you know, didn't resonate with people, I wouldn't have kept it going. I would have just gone back to my desk job. <laughs> and at least I would have, you know, said that I kind of gave it a chance to bring my dream to life. But, um, but luckily, you know, people really resonated with what we did. So we continued to use it as more of a creative space. Um, we were running a profitable business as a pop-up, um, even with some of, you know, the supply chain inefficiencies and operational inefficiencies that you just have as the nature of um, being a pop-up and all of the work that that entails. Um, but we did a small friends and family style kind of fundraising round where we semi-bootstrapped, asked friends and family for, you know, some financial help along the way to really help support our growth. Um, and that's how we were able to kind of soft roll into a sandwich or sandwich shop. And that, did you raise separately for the sandwich shop and for the cafe and grocery, or was it all sort of packaged together? Like, did you already have that plan that we're like, we're going to do a sandwich shop and then we're going to have a larger, a larger space as well. We did it all at the same time. Mm -hmm. I actually never thought about having a sandwich shop. It kind of just, I always wanted to have the eatery and grocery. You know, my background was in consumer goods. I was like, that's what I know. That's what I'm good at. Um, anytime I was really stressed out in my life or, you know, just needed some dose of inspiration, I was always like rummaging and kind of like wandering through the grocery store aisles. I don't know. It was just like my happy place, which sounds kind of weird, but um, it's just like when people go to like Barnes and Nobles and like sit and read magazines and peruse the aisles, you know, that's what I did, but with grocery stores, um, it's funny, yeah. Christina Tosi said the same thing. So it's like, you have that in common coming from Milk Bar. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was probably the first person ever to buy her cookbook. I was a <laughs> fan of so many years before I got to work um, with her. But, um, but the interesting thing was, I, we, were, we started with bagels because I thought it was the hardest thing to start with. Um, just knowing New Yorkers and how critical everybody is about bagels and how, um, how iconic they are. I just thought that that was the easiest and the hardest place to start. Cause I was like, if people like our bagels, then I know I have something good. Mm -hmm. Um, and it wasn't, an, and, and even when we fundraised, there was no sandwich shop <laughs> in our, you know, small deck that we put together a presentation of the future of Edith's and what that looked like. There was no talk of having a sandwich shop. Um, it's just what people really gravitated towards. And it's kind of the way we were able to continue growing because we knew that that's what people liked and that's what it worked. Um, and it was only come July when we had already been open as a sandwich shop for a few months at that point. Um, we opened in late March and 
I was sitting outside in July while we were building and breaking ground on the eatery and grocery. And I was, we still had lines around the corner and we have this viral coffee drink um, that was kind of like a last minute decision to put on our menu that has totally taken off. Mm-hmm. And I'm just sitting outside having a coffee slushy. And I'm like, you know, maybe there is something to having a sandwich shop too. Um, so it kind of, again, just came about very naturally, but um, yeah, I had never actually opened Edith's with the intent of having a sandwich shop at all. How did the, how did the economics of morphing into a sandwich shop affect your business and your, your short long-term ideas for growth? Was it, are, are sandwiches a profitable business or, or an easy to operate business? Um, I would say that in the biggest benefit to soft rolling and kind of bootstrapping and opening the sandwich shop was it, it afforded me the ability to keep my team. Um, restaurants were all opening up again after being closed for a very tough winter. Edis was kind of like that bright spot. And while we were finding success as a pop-up, you know, it wasn't the case for the rest of the restaurant industry. And with nicer weather, I was definitely feeling a lot of pressure, um, to try to afford a way to keep my team. And I obviously didn't have the financial backing or the means to be able to compete with other restaurants who could offer benefits and, um, you know, higher salaries and better wages and better paid time off policies. Um, So being able to continue to pay people and have that working capital flow um, was the biggest priority. Um, I was like, I have to find a way to keep my team. (laughs) They were so important to the success of Edith's and so many times you hear that people are irreplaceable, you know, there you so many times you hear that people are replaceable. And here I am being like, my team is irreplaceable. Um, their contributions to our team were just in, in Edith's in general and the creative um, spirit that we have. Um, it was just so important. So it enabled me to keep my team first and foremost. Um, sandwiches themselves are not a super profitable business in the way that we, we make them. Um, if you're like a subway and your supply chain is based on driving down, um, a ton of raw material costs, whether it's packaging, whether it's food ingredients, um, sandwiches can be highly profitable. We do them like little mini plated dishes almost, um, And while we can insulate our supply chain by fermenting our own pickles in-house, you know, managing our fish supply chain end-to-end, so we work directly with a supplier, Um, we break them down whole, so we get whole fish in, we butcher them in-house, and then we, you know, cure, smoke, and then slice by hand. And there's ways that we can insulate our costs, but sandwiches in the way that we do it um you need a lot of volume for it to be profitable to the point where you know you have a sustainable business um just because we're very focused on um overall products and customer experience and our mission which doesn't always equate to driving a ton of costs down whether that's on the labor side or raw material side 
So, did you, so you found the ca- the deli like where the sandwich counter is, and the Edith's eatery and grocery at the same time. But the de- but you were able to open the sandwich counter first. Yes, because the space was very much turnkey, um, right? And with everything we needed to get started, um, and in retrospect, <laughs> signing two big leases at the same time is probably not something I would do again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's scary. It's a lot of financial exposure. It's that's scary. It was definitely the scariest combination of decisions I've ever made. Um, And I think if I were to do it again, I probably would have done it a little bit differently. Um, But it did enable us to not only accomplish our goal of continuing to keep our team, continue a lot of, you know, traction around the brand. And, um, you know, we already knew how to run a sandwich shop, essentially, because that's what we had been doing at a pop up. And we were still doing like 200 plus tickets just as a pop up every single day. So you know, that's the volume of a normal sandwich shop. So it was a very easy operational transition for us. Um, Much different than our newest location, which took a lot of time to build out. Um, And definitely is a new beast for us. We've never had like tables or bathrooms. (laughs) So all of that is definitely new for us. How was the how was the transition from pop up to permanent location as far as your audience was concerned that did you I feel like you know from the audience perspective pop up has obvious you know connotation of being limited or you know you get it while you can whereas your permanent location is a little less imperative to get there on Saturday right so how do you keep the interest alive in a permanent business after having done the pop up that's a great question it was actually one of the things I was most concerned about just because if you're talking about any sort of place that had that kind of cachet where it was like get it while you can very limited you know availability it really drove a lot of people um to us um it was definitely like Edith really embodied a lot of that like pop-up energy um my biggest concern when we transition to our first brick and mortar shop was, you know, when companies start to grow bigger, and I know this better than anyone else, just because of my background, um, you have the choice that you're faced with where you have to decide um, if you have to start cutting corners, whether that's on your food quality or your cost of goods sold or just the way that you operate. Um, I was really concerned about the community aspect of Edith's. You know, we were so supported by our Greenpoint community um, that I was like really nervous about losing our customers and thinking, oh my gosh, they're getting bigger. They're going to lose everything that's special about them. They're going to lose the attention to quality on their food you know, they're gonna not have the same kind of intimate customer feeling like Alyssa's not going to be there standing at the front anymore. You know, you kind of are faced with all of those different things right away. Um, And that was the when we were raising money, even from our friends and family, they were like, 
you know, some people were nervous. They were like, you know, we really want to see how your transition goes because just because you have a pop-up that's really successful and buzzy and, you know, by all means successful, um, it doesn't mean that you're going to have, you know, a long-term business that can really withstand the test of time, um, especially in a city like New York and Brooklyn where everything's ever changing. Um, so those were the things that were top of my mind when we transitioned and opened our sandwich shop. And I think that, um, I'm proud of how we've handled all of the diversity, um, especially given the climate and, um, we continue to get great ratings on our food. And at the end of the day, um, it's all about serving people great food and great hospitality. And I think that how we've navigated that, I'm, I'm really proud of. And I'm curious also, cause both, both locations, the counter, the sandwich shop or, um, you know, the counter, are you calling it a sandwich shop? What do you call it? You call it counter. You're the counter. It's technically a counter. Well, they're <laughs> a shop. I don't know. We have, I always <laughs> call it the shop, but the I guess- shop. The shop versus the eatery. I'm curious. I mean, Russ and Daughters has done this very successfully. So I'm, and I'm, you know, with having the cafe on Orchard Street, just a few blocks from their original shop. So I'm, I'm just, I'm curious because it's, it's a similar approach, right? Like you have both in the same neighborhood. And I'm curious how you're like explaining that to customers and trying to attract customers and, and who you see as the customer for each one. Yeah. So, and I think Russ and Daughters is like a, to your point, a perfect example. And, and Polly does this as well with mm-hmm. his original, like wood fired location versus his slice shop. Mm-hmm. Um, and the biggest like mo- thing is that everybody gets confused. That <laughs> <It's like, laughs> you have the coffee slushies at your new location. No. Okay. So we get customers now that go to the sandwich shop with the coffee slushie in hand and then come to the grocery and we'll sit down and <laughs> pancakes. Um, but the most important thing to us was definitely creating a separate, totally separate customer experience. Um, you know, the sandwich shop is great for food that's super fast, great if you're hungover or starving or, um, you know, looking for a dose of comfort, like on the go. And then, the grocery is really meant to spend time in. Um, I always thought that what the Jewish delis of today were really missing was not the food. You know, the food has been pretty iconic and has stayed the same for a long time. And it, the food needing some innovation is, you know, my own personal stance on that. But you know, the great thing about the Jewish deli was that it was a community institution. Um, It was a place that you would go if you had a meeting or a birthday or you were mourning a loss. And I think that that's the type of place that makes a community really strong. And, you know, when you go to the new eatery and grocery, you know, there's little cards on all of our grocery products that help take the questions out of shopping for more like global ingredients and how to use them in your everyday life. So there's kind of these historical facts or cooking tips. And, you know, it's really meant to kind of like spend time in browse, do some work on your computer, 
um, and we have a completely different menu um, mm-hmm. to try to really set the two locations apart. And were you worried at all from cannibalizing one from the other or, or because you feel like they're so different? It's, it's already attract, is it, is it already attracting different customers? Yeah, I think is, you know, it's always a concern, you know, we're so new and the fact that people even know Edith, you know, just a year after being open is always like surprising and exciting to me. Um, and it's hard to stick to your guns. You know, like every person that walks into the new eatery and groceries are like, do you have your tahini slushies here? Now, all I want to do is like say yes and shove a bunch into everybody's hands. But, um, but I think as long as we're kind of true to the two unique concepts, that's ultimately what's going to give us long-term success. Um, And I just, you know, it's up to us to kind of mitigate that like customer confusion and do our best to send people to the right location, depending on what they're looking for. And even as a pop-up, I, you know, people would come by and they'd be like, can I have a slice of pepperoni or like, (laughs) (laughs) and I'm like, oh, you're looking for the slice shop that's like down the street. So, Mm. you know, it's like, I think it's just the nature of the game and, um, it's kind of up to us to kind of dictate those two experiences and, and tell customers, you know, what experience you're going to have depending on where, where you're at. The, uh, the slushies come up a few times. Tell us about how it was created, who came up with it, and did you anticipate <laughs> it being what it is now? You have a viral food. I feel like it's like, that's like a unicorn situation. It is. I mean, it's, it's so funny because I, I don't know. There's so many versions of this drink, you know, like Starbucks has a frappuccino and you have aroma. They have, they're an Israeli company. They have their iced coffee and um, my favorite bar, Skinny Dennis in Williamsburg. Um, they have an alcoholic version. And um, it's so interesting because I, we didn't have the ability to have an espresso machine, which is what everybody really wants. They want a latte or flat white. And I had no way to be able to afford or the space to put it in. So I was like, well, what can we give to people? Um, which is drip coffee. Um, and then the whole time we were a pop-up, all I wanted was a slushy machine. I love Seven Eleven, So that was like my favorite thing growing up were like the Coca-Cola slushies um, and like the cherry and the blue and like, I don't know, it's just like reminded me of childhood. Um, And in Israel, if you go to get an iced coffee, they don't have um, just cold coffee or cold brew. Um, They have these coffee slushies. So I thought it would be a fun way to incorporate that part of Jewish culture here. Um, since we do global Jewish food. Um, and I asked Christina, our, our executive chef, um, two days before we opened the sandwich shop, (laughs) I said, I bought a slushy machine. I didn't ask anybody. I said, I just bought a slushy machine and I need you to make a coffee (laughs) slushy for when we open. And she looked at me like I had six heads because it was two days before we were opening. We just had Eater come and do a photo shoot. And 
everyone was really excited about our next phase of our transition. And she's like, seriously, you're going to throw this at me like 48 hours before we open. Um, but in true Christina form, she always can whip something up like that literally is just amazing. Um, and because of the quality of the slushy machine that we could afford not being that great. Um, <laughs> we had like kind of a crappier slushy machine cause I could only afford a granita machine. Um, <sighs> it separated the oat milk and the coffee, um, into that, <laughs> like, that white. is amazing. Yeah. And I was like looking at it and I was like, what is that? And Christina was like, well, it's just like the frozen fat because the machine isn't that nice. So it doesn't fully. <laughs> it's not emulsifying it. Yeah. Yeah. So it doesn't emulsify the fat <laughs> into the actual drink. So it comes out looking kind of like that white speckled tie dye look. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, I kind of like it. And everyone's kind of drinking it and tasting it. And everyone's like, yeah, this tastes really good. And I was like, okay, well, let's just go with it. Because <laughs> like, we just bought this machine. It was $2,400. I was like, we're just going to go with it and see what people think. And then it just, we started with two flavors. We had like this um, limonana, which is another like famous Israeli drink. It's like a mint lemonade slushy, And nobody wanted it. They just wanted the coffee. And it is our number one best-selling item today. Uh, it accounts for over 10% of our over, overall sales, which Holy is shit. Crazy That's amazing. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And it just has become this like viral thing. And so we wanted to be able to bring it to more people. So we wanted to put it on delivery platforms, which we do about 40% of our business on, which is huge. Um, and we bought this great fancy slushy machine when we could afford it. And we're looking at it. And because it's so much nicer and it functions how it's supposed to function, it fully emulsifies the fat. No! Oh, can't use this now. <laughs> Shitty so slushy machines only. Fantastic, That's though. Hilarious. You can like expand your business on it now cheaper machines. Back, totally covered. <laughs> Luckily, oh my God, put it on eBay. I know. I was like, luckily, we're going to just bring it to the eatery and grocery. We get our liquor license this month. And the only thing we get asked is, when are you adding booze to the ice cafe? Mm -hmm. um, we have another slushy flavor that we're going to be launching with alcohol. So it's not going to be the coffee, at least to start. Um, but at least I have another place to use my over priced expensive slushy machine <laughs> that is so fun that's hilarious I love that story yeah um, that's just what I mean it's wild and you never did it take did it go viral pretty immediately or did it take a little bit of time it took a little bit of time um but you know it was climbing in popularity like we have two chambers of our slushy machine and we got rid of the fruit flavor maybe two months in and then it was August and I have a lot of cousins. I have a very, I come from a very large, loud Jewish family. <laughs> and all of a sudden I start getting tags on Instagram from my cousins and they're in Chicago and they're in Florida. And I'm like, what's going on? Like, what are they doing? And I'm looking and I'm like, where did this, what is going on? 
Um, and then I saw that the Food Network posted it on mm. Instagram and it just completely bloated. And we got like 6,000 new followers in one week. People were posting it from like Dubai and Moscow and like reposting the videos and coming in from all over the world just to try this coffee drink. That's wild. Um, it's wild. The fact that it has tahina in it, you know, we get a ton of people from all over the world. They're just so interested in how it was incorporated into the drink. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that some people think it looks disgusting, <laughs> <laughs> some people think it looks delicious, created this polarizing effect where no matter if people thought it, we got like the comments were so mean I was like should I be crying into my pillow every night or should I be excited that people are talking about us um because like I know it tastes great but um but I think the fact that there was some controversy behind it and people were like no it looks disgusting and some people were like no it looks amazing you know it created this conversation around food which is ultimately what we want to do um but that's that's kind of how it like catapulted um that one specific menu item into like this viral tiktok instagram world well the proof is in the pudding if it's 10 percent of your sales it's (laughs) i've had it it's delicious um I think that's, it's so interesting. I want to go back to something else you mentioned, which is that 40% of your sales are delivery. So I'm curious, was that, is, was that a surprise to you or is that something you planned for and built into the business from the beginning? Um, I almost planned enough for nothing to be mm-hmm. built to the business. Everything that I thought I was going to do with Edith's, like just everything changes the second I commit to doing something seems to be typically how it works but um but with um kind of with this situation it was it was just by ha- I mean, it sounds kind of weird but um it was just all by happenstance that we even got to like get to this point I guess um nothing was ever the plan I think that we wanted to keep the momentum behind the brand. So when we were a pop-up, we decided to launch delivery platforms um, because everybody kept telling me, you can't stop the pop-up, you're gonna lose momentum. Um, And I was like, okay, well, how can we keep momentum going? And I was like, well, the weather is terrible. Why don't we just try delivery? My cousin happens to work for Grubhub. (laughs) So I was like, can you get us a good deal? Can we try it? And the first couple of times we turned it on, we just got totally annihilated. Like we just got so many orders. We just couldn't deal with it. But as time went on, um, I think we realized it gave a lot of people access to our food that wouldn't normally be able to come. You know, we had long lines and I got messages from customers saying like, how can I get your food if I'm like physically unable to stand in line or you know, people were really afraid to go outside of their house and grocery shop or dine. Um, So ultimately, it gave us the ability to drive a lot of awareness um, and bring 
you know, just give access um, to our food more easily. Um, I think that if we didn't have to do delivery, you know, we wouldn't. I think just in this day and age, um, it's kind of a necessary evil. All of our competitors are on delivery platforms. And I think that, um, yeah, we do, we do so much delivery business. And I think that because of the current state of the world, it's not going to go away anytime soon. Um, so we just kind of accommodate accordingly and, you know, we change our pricing, you know, on each of the different platforms and, um, we do our best to manage like our own customer flow and experience, but, um, but yeah, that's kind of, we did delivery out of like the desire to give more people the opportunity to eat our food. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And I think it helps when you build it in from the beginning and plan for it with your margins and whatnot. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, the biggest problem we have with delivery platforms is really just trying to make sure that our wait times are, are managed appropriately. Um, trying to get customers who like come in person, their food first is kind of always our goal, but you know, we just get so many orders all at once sometimes that it makes it really hard. So it's the customer experience piece that I think really falls to the wayside there. But I think there's a certain level of expectation from food on delivery platforms. Um, so we try to do our best to, to make sure that if anything goes wrong, you'll see like Grubhub reviews that I'll like hand deliver things on my bike, <laughs> or I'll put food in Ubers. Um, if anything goes wrong. So I try to go the extra mile um, where I think the delivery platforms fall, fall short. Customer service at its finest. Hi, I'm Kiki Luya, the executive director of Restaurant Workers Community Foundation. And I'm the host of a new podcast called Shift Work. In the last six months, some 6,500 restaurants have closed their doors, and there's never been a time when restaurants and their 12 million workers have been more vulnerable. It's time to transform hospitality. With Shift Work, a podcast made in collaboration with RWCF and HRN, we're shifting the conversation about how the restaurant food you love makes its way to the table. What does it really take to make that experience happen? And who are the countless workers responsible? We're talking porters, cleaning crew, prep cooks, servers, baristas, hosts, bartenders, barbacks, managers, sommeliers, and chefs. I'll also introduce you to organizations that are leading industry transformation. We'll discuss mental health, fair pay, racial justice, and how hospitality can change for the better. We need it. Listen to and follow Shift Work on your favorite podcast app. We like to do a little lightning round with all of our guests where we ask pretty much the same questions. Um, so I'd love to, you're meant to be like quick one minute or one word answer kind of things. So you can elaborate obviously where you, where you feel, where you feel appropriate, but let's move into that. Alan, you want to kick it off? Sure. Favorite, uh, favorite menu item at the uh, sandwich shop? Our Sephardi wrap really so good it's our version of a breakfast burrito um and it's amazing what about them i think we already know this but the most ordered menu item the ice cafe and our baby he's <laughs> latka the perfect hangover combo <laughs> the latka is the second one um yeah our bacon egg and cheese latka oh, bacon egg like, and cheese latka 
Yeah, it's like that hangover combo. Yeah. So it's like a latke with bacon, egg, and cheese on top. Yeah, it's our bagel. And then inside is like a, our latkes, which are Whoa. one of popular size. And then it's topped with a Japanese style um, omelet, egg, bacon, and our special sauce. Mm. What about your, and this I think would probably play into your supply chain and logistics, best food cost item? Um, I would say our smoked salmon, not that it's the cheapest or the most expensive, but it's compared to the market. Um, the, the food costs that we're most competitive on. And that's because you're doing it all yourself from end to end. From end to end. Yeah. What about your best business resource when you were starting up? That can be a person, website, book, whatever. Definitely my dad. Um, I would, I think nobody's been through the ups and downs of Edith's more so than my family. <laughs> um, hearing me call them three times a day, whether I'm like happy or crying or stressed out or angry. Um, both my parents work for themselves. They're both entrepreneurs. My mom actually helped me design our new location. She's an interior designer. Um, but but yeah, good old advice for my parents, probably. I love that. And last question, who is Edith? Edith is my great aunt. Um, she is the inspiration behind everything we do. Her intellect, her warmth, um, her like spitfire, like never say die energy. And I have to say it because um, it's amazing. But her oldest brother, who... Um, is still with us today, turns 100 this month. Wow. Last year for his 99th birthday, I sent him a bunch of Edith swag. Um, and this year, um, we're doing like a big giant, like family Zoom celebration for his birthday. So um, Edith is no longer with us, but Uncle Sid is turning 100. Ashkenazi, super Eater jeans. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Cool. Um, so we always, the other thing we like to do is shout out opening soon announcements, which obviously you just opened soon, but anybody tell everybody where the new location is. And if there's any other friends or people, you know, in the industry have recently opened, do you want to shout out? Yeah. Um, our new eatery and grocery store is open at 312 Leonard Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And I'm going to shout out to um, our neighbor, Bonnie's. Um, they yes. just opened down the street calvin came to our opening sorry murray don't bark um <laughs> calvin came to our opening weekend which was a big moment for me you know not being in the restaurant industry um which was very exciting i know that they do a lot of fun stuff as well um and i'm gonna shout it out also to boz bagels not recently open but they actually are new kind of like women bagel mentors of mine. <laughs> They're kind of like the exact opposite, like OG New Yorkers um, who have kind of been my new bagel sages along the way. So those are kind of my two. Oh, I'll give one more. Uh, Nick from Lay Industry. Um, he's looking us up with some amazing pizza um, to support all of like our late night team efforts. So <laughs> those are kind of some of our friends. So many of our favorites. We actually went to Bonnie's last 
Thursday night and it was awesome. Um, so they're doing such fun stuff. I know we're going as a team, um, next week and I can't wait. I've been dying to eat some of their food and I live two blocks away and I'm always kind of peeking into the windows at night. Um, and I'm really excited to try it. So I'm excited that the neighborhood's getting some amazing new food. Well, well thank you. Can you tell us um, and our listeners where we can find you uh, on social and on the web? Yeah, so you can follow everything that we're doing at EDIS. We have so many exciting things coming up this year. Um, and you can follow us on Instagram if you search edithsbk.com. Um, and we just have a new website that we're launching at www.edithsbk.com. So cool. And we are at, we are opening soon and at till MIC. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. We'll see you at the shop soon. Yeah, that sounds great. Opening soon is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter, enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org, and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You could also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.